You're listening to Ink Studs, and my guest this week is Nick Bantock. Nick's latest book is The Trickster's Hat. Uh, you may know him from his uh, other series, including the well-known and much-loved and well-read uh, The Griffin and Sabine trilogy, as well as The Venetian's Wife and a slew of other works. Um, we were just talking about how it kind of straddles the comics world, and uh, Nick was saying it's it's 50% of the work. And um, thinking about that, um, Nick, when you're getting into your work, do you approach it um, primarily visually or first text, or do you kind of play with the two together when you're composing? I definitely play with the two together. I mean, I, I look on it as a, a marriage between the left brain and the right brain. So it's it's really, it's a, I associate imagery with uh, intuition and, and word with logic. It's not always that way round, of course. I mean, you, you know, take poetry, for example. But, you know, if, if, if I find that I start with an image or start with text and then I moved to the opposite side, so the text gives me an idea for image and the image gives me an idea for text, and I keep that flowing all the way through, it keeps me reasonably balanced. Um, thinking on the left brain, right brain thing, um, I'm wondering if you're talking about logic and with the text, is there kind of a problem-solving component? to the work that you do, in a way? Um, I, I, I think there is. I, I, I mean, it, it's an oversimplification, obviously. It's the, like a, it's the, it's the same oversimplification as, as saying that you know, male and female are opposites, of, of mm -hmm. course. Within the lines of text, there is a huge realm for uh, trusting the process of allowing the words to come floating to the surface. Um, and imagery there is also an arena where it's it it can be at certain times very very carefully planned or there could be a a strong reliance on all of the groundwork that you know been done over you know tens of thousands of hours so um it it, it, it as i say it would be an oversimplification to say it breaks on either side of the cerebral cortex but it, it does. It does help to keep thinking of it that way because then that's a bit like having uh, two chairs set out in Gestalt therapy, where you move from one to the other to make sure that you don't stick too long in one side. Now, do you do you have a background before going into being an artist and writer, or um, has it always well, I, I been started, your primary I started. Direction? I, I I went to art college when I was okay. fifteen years fifteen years old, and I sort of did uh, fine art painting, and I was you know out of there by you know twenty one. Um, and then I didn't start writing until I was forty. In fact, I, I actually had an English teacher at school that told me the best thing I could do for humanity was never pick up a pen again. So, and it, it took me twenty five years to really get over it. Um, so, when I actually came up with the idea of of Griffin and Sabine, um, and a publisher saw it, and they said to me that you know they expected me to do the writing. I I nearly died laughing because I just I I really did definitely not think of myself as a writer. Um, but it's interesting how you you know you you grow into something. Now you, you it, I seem to recall you did children's books before that, correct? Or you've done children's um, books? No, Griffin. Well. <laughs> It was. I came up with a bunch of ideas. Or I, mm -hmm. I sat down one day and said, right, it's because I used to do book covers. 
and I, okay. I and um, I decided I was going to do my own books, and I came out up with ten ideas, and amongst those ideas were a bunch of pop-up books, but there was also um, a, a postcard book, and uh, the last of the ten, and the one that I thought least likely to get published because it was seemingly the most self-indulgent, was Griffin and Sabine. I mean, little did I know that that was the one that was going to really ignite my career. Because I was thinking, just from other conversations I had with folks in the more kind of book-centric stuff, there's always been a challenge to kind of justify um, within the the institution being able to write your own material. I think it's interesting that they encouraged um, for yourself. I I think I, I I'm kind of lucky because because my background didn't come is is not literary. Um, I, because I came from the fine art side, which tends to be a bit more sort of free-flowing, you know, anarchic, rebellious, um, that it was far easier for me to approach writing not so much from a point of view of how it should be done or how it ought to be done or looking over my shoulder at, you know, sort of how, how great writers would have put it together. But in, in fact, I came at it far more from the idea of just simply trying to find a personal voice. Now, your new book, um, The Trickster's Hat, um, mm. A Mischievous Apprenticeship in Creativity, um, in the intro, there's a phrase I'm really curious about. Um, uh, art offers a path to our souls. And and I kind of want to delve a little more into that sure. and sure. kind of how that plays for you um, personally, creatively, um, in, in what you're developing and how you develop? I, I think there's a certain, you know, as you commit to art as um, a life, in, in other words, that your, your art, your spirituality, your daily life become all one and the same thing, it, it tends to lead you, um, if you trust that process, if you, you know, for want of a better term, if you trust the universe to show you the way. In other words, if, if you don't try and uh, preempt and control things with your ego, but you actually can more accept that you're uh, a culvert or a pipe through which things pass, then little by little, I've found, and a lot of other people I've spoken to, find that the work that emerges from you is actually not only surprising, but it's far better than something that I could contrive with the front of my mind. Do you find that there's, you get a, a different feeling out of work that you create for yourself than work you may do as an illustrator? Um, yeah, I mean, it's a long, long time since I've, I've, I've worked on anybody else's stuff, but I, I do remember very clearly what that was like, and sometimes it would be frustrating, sometimes I'd, I'd manage to create enough room to do something that was essentially mine, but I always reminded myself that, you know, whether you were Rembrandt or Leonardo, you know, the Rembrandt was working for the burgers, and... Um, Leonardo was working for the church or Lorenzo Medici. You know, the, the, you always have somebody who wants something in a certain way. Mm -hmm. The whole notion of creating art purely from um, for self is is very much a sort of 19th century concept. And in a way, I, I prefer to to let go on that. 
um, I'm lucky enough not to have to produce things for other people, but rather than um, producing something that is a, a, a repetitive intoxication of my uh, own thought patterns, I'd much rather throw myself into the fire, as what the um, what the Spanish call duende, and, and just um, <laughs> let the spirit speak. <laughs> Or, or, or be the spirit, not exactly um, what uh, the Victorian clergy would appreciate. Now, um, the the Trickster's book. One of the things I was thinking about. Um, it's it's kind of uh, a book of just different ways of inspiring creativity. I guess is that a good way? Yeah. Of well, it's it's fourteen. It's a, it, it's an introduction. Um, and then there are a series of 49 exercises, and those exercises range massively through um, writing, collage, drawing, and even you know, sending people out in the forest to build little villages. Um, it, it's, it's really designed to help um, the notion of play. I, I mean, Jung said there's no creativity without play. Once you once you can get back to that position of play and to respond to your own areas of energy and enthusiasm and what actually preoccupies you and what you're curious about and what are the big questions that matter to you, when you when you start to go back into that realm, it's extraordinary. I find how an ex exhilarating day's work can actually be, and and so the the, the exercises are really um, a series of um, shakes and pushes to help people either get out of their stuck place or to overcome the fear that you know basically I can't do it. I mean, so many people are taught at school in art classes to think of an idea and then try and create it. Well, it's an incredibly difficult thing to do. I mean, you know, the very best, you know, uh, who've been a professional artist for years struggle at that. So why would anyone in their, you know, in their early years be able to do something like that? And and yet it's that's why people get frightened. They, they, they get worried that they can't do it. How many times have you heard someone say, oh, I can't draw? I mean, you don't actually need to be able to do that to start. Sure, to learn your craft long term is if you're going to take it seriously. That's an important, a very important aspect. But it's not prohibitive of beginning. And so, you know, the, this book is really an encouragement for people to start creating first and then, you know, worry what's coming out afterwards. Now, are these exercises, um, the 49 exercises, that you've developed personally for yourself? Um, uh, they're a combination. Uh, I mean, having taught workshops for a number of years, they're sort of, they've slowly emerged as I've seen what people's struggles are, as I've um, tried to help people over their own resistances and, and blocks. So these these exercises have have grown, and and they're they're, they're basically born out of um, the proof of the pudding is in the eating. You know, I've I've tried exercises. If they work, um, I continue to modify them and, until they seem most functional. 
Um, the difference, obviously, between doing a workshop is that I'm sitting there and I'm watching people and I'm actually able to get the tone of the group and therefore I can direct which exercises I think are appropriate at the time. Um, in a way, with this book, because you've got you know, 49 exercises laid out, the individual who's you know, reading, looking at the book, is, is going to have to do a little bit more work themselves. But hopefully, on one level, my voice is there to encourage them along. So you workshopped all of these or some of these with groups um, or folks in different communities? Yeah, I, I've, 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 part of, I mean, I've been doing workshops for about you know, 12, 12, 14 years. I, I mean, mm-hmm. one of the reasons for actually doing this book is, is, is because I'm, I'm getting back to books again. Mm-hmm. And so I, you know, I don't really want to be doing uh, workshops on a regular basis. So in the idea was that if I actually put it down in a book, not only would I you know, access a lot more people, but then I needn't actually be you know, doing on a sort of rev- regular rhythmic basis workshops. So you encourage folks to bring these into their own communities and try them out? Uh, absolutely. You know, <laughs> I mean, you're not going to do any damage by by trying something out. I mean, okay, sometimes you might do, I mean, there's one or two exercises in there that I think are pretty profound, pretty intense. But the idea is not to create a, a therapeutic situation, but to actually simply get people to break free of their judgments and pour things out on paper and actually just simply be surprised what comes out. So, uh, example, there's one exercise called building a country, which is essentially gives um, people permission to invent their own country. And I you know, take them step by step doing that. And what that actually does is help people build their own internal mythology, their, the landscape of their internal universe, which is essentially the, 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 the place of the baseline of where their creative energy comes from. It, it, we're not encouraged to do that in our society. In fact, quite the opposite. So, you know, in, in that sense, it's, it, it's provocative, but it's provocative uh, um, in a way, hopefully, that is um, genuinely helpful um, to people's inner lives and from that point makes their outer lives easier to live. Have you ever heard of uh, Buckminster Fuller's workshops? Oh, yeah. I know Buckminster Fuller because, you know, I'm old enough to have been through art college (laughs) when everyone was building geodesic duns. I mean, I remember a guy building a a five-foot geodesic dome out of cocktail sticks. He said, yes, I do know, I do know Buckminster Fuller. He, he did this one, and I'm probably going to get it way off. I read about it in a Robert Anton Wilson book probably 20 years ago. Uh-huh. Uh, but he had this one work, workshop where folks would uh, work together to kind of you de- a world problem or how to, like, create a world and be able to share resources and development yeah. and kind of, like, how to work together. And it's interesting, kind of reminds me of that, and just kind of like how do you kind of spread beyond what's immediately comfortable and kind of work within challenges. 
Well, it's interesting you should say that because I, I remember um, I, I did a Spain workshop every year and there was one year where um, I divided the group into two and sent them off into different directions and um, I, I just gave them instruction to out of the things that they find, um, you know, twigs, branches, leaves, bits of mud or whatever, build a village. And one group went off, and that's what they did. They had a whale of a time. They started building stuff there. You could hear them laughing and joking, and they they built their own thing, and then they joined it together. And it was, you know, it was it was magnificent. Um, the other group uh, went off and stood around in a circle, and argued over every single little detail um, about, you know, whether this was appropriate to build this or appropriate to do that. And, and at the end of two hours, they'd done virtually nothing. And when the two groups were brought together, it was fascinating their response to what each other had done. But the, 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 the bottom line was that we really, really do have choice. You know, mm -hmm. if, if we, if we, I, there is no reason why we shouldn't, even in active community and sharing, while we shouldn't use all our own individual curiosity, um, uh, curiosity and uh, creativity and, and link them together. Whereas uh, if we try to uh, uh, predetermine everything, um, then uh, it's almost going to go against us being able to actually do, to build something. So do you think of like learning outcomes that wouldn't necessarily be what you're expected? Like you will develop this this city, but more of a kind of you'll have an understanding of what goes into this or how to. I I I, I think again it's you know there's a there's a um, a great phrase by James Hillman. He said we think we think then act, but what we really do is act and justify our actions. And I think as human beings, we're far best when we just simply plow into and start making. You know, we just we just start simply be kids in sandbox and and allow our instincts and our intuitions and our emotions to just come out at the end of our fingers, and then we can stand back and intellectualize and justify and qualify what we've done. But if we try and do it the other way round we become tongue-tied. Mm -hmm. I was thinking, um, were we this also about um, some other kind of literary games that folks have played um, and just kind of the different approach of those take is like something like, say, Burroughs with the cut-up um, or I should yeah. say Geisen with the cut-up um, and how it's less, I guess, a creative inspiration tool and more of a kind of... Um, how do I phrase it? Like, I, I know I know what you're saying. It's, it's it's like going back to that whole sort of early surrealist thing where yeah. you, you 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 take uh, two paragraphs from completely different sources and then you take the nouns out and then you transpose them. You switch them from one side to the other and then what you get is a series of really curious sentences that are either total nonsense or on some weird level they seem to make very elegant sense but it's not something that we could contrive you you actually have to go through the act of doing it in order to to get these um these unexpected sort of surges of poetry which then tend to um, inspire us and it allows us it, it helps 
us trust the fact that if if we if we're open, then what will come will be far more intriguing. Kind of stemming from that, or maybe completely different, is uh, you introduce an idea or use an idea of um, pictorial autobiography. Yeah. Um, and I'm wondering about how that comes out of um, the, these games, these workshops, these puzzles. Well, well, it really, it really came from a single line that was once said to you know told me by um, a, a, an editor that you know she. she she always encouraged people to um, write their first novel and then throw it away. Mm-hmm. And when asked why, she said, because it will inevitably a com- be a complete self-justification. You'll be telling the world, you know, you may not be using yourself directly, but one of the characters in there will be simply describing why you got it right and everybody else is wrong. So you, you, in a kind of way, you need to do that, get it out of your system, and then you can actually start writing something that's got some weight and substance. We, in other words, we all need our story to be told from our own personal perspective. And I started to think about that and thought, well, yeah, but I mean, it takes a long time to write a novel. So maybe there's a shortcut, you know, a short version of that. So that's when I came up with the idea of doing um, a, a, a small pictorial autobiography in half an hour that that you know you just ripped pieces from a magazine um made collages up that described your life up to this point um i mean of course it's completely impossible on one level but the very act of doing it is um it, it actually has a remarkable effect in the sense that it it, it, it we feel that we've ex- we've expressed ourselves mm-hmm. and it seems that you can take on a lot more of an abstract notion yes in yeah that. yeah yeah com- com- completely because you have to because unless you unless you do it, it's you know it, it becomes incredibly boring and literal but you also you can't do it in the time and you can't you know with the materials available to you it's not going to work so in other words you have to you have to just <laughs> sort of let go on on the the self-justification one of the, the artists i was thinking of kind of that connect i was coming out of nowhere with connection was Henry Darger um, and I'm wondering kind of thoughts on that within that context I, I, I missed the first bit you said uh, kind of one thinking about the pictorial autobiography and just right. some of the approach with collage and stuff and I was thinking like Henry Darger was coming to mind um, and I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on kind of how his work within that context I don't even think I know the per- Henry Dodger, did you say? Yeah, he's from Chicago, and um, he's kind of a outsider folk artist who, uh, when he I was... Do, uh, okay, so, so in, my, in, my, in my ignorance, um, <laughs> I, I, I don't know his work. Um, okay. I, what, I, what I would say is, though, that I, you know, if, if we're talking about outsiders, I think outsiders, the outsider art is incredibly powerful. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in, in, in general, I mean, I remember being in my early 20s and seeing probably the first outside, outsider art show, which was at the Hayward Gallery in London, and being completely blown away because I, you know, I'd grown up within the, the, the fine art circuit and to see something as powerful and strong from people who were supposedly untrained really taught me a, a, a great deal about you know, where where truth lies, particularly in in art. So, um, 
I, I think there's a often I think it's overestimated the um, the initial training um, mm-hmm. that you can have in in terms of um, preparation to be an artist. I think a lot of that is really directed at getting people um, into galleries and playing the status quo game or, you know, in, in the terms of illustrators, in terms of, of um, uh, uh, getting the, an, a, um, your foot in the door in terms of income. But I often think that's in really um, inhibitory in terms of uh, going far enough into yourself to actually produce something that's raw enough to uh, be internally honest, but also something that will resonate with other people. Otherwise, you know, you're tending to just play the game. Yeah. Do you, within your own work, um, do you find there's kind of a tug and like coming from this like academy background um, versus like really going in with the impulse and really allowing to kind of shed that kind of it, 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 it was difficult at first I, I admit but that's so many years ago now yeah. um, that I've I've kind of got to um, a, a place where I, I I know when it's appropriate to use um, the the skill in my right hand, and I know when it's appropriate to switch the pencil to the left hand where I've got no control. You know, it, it, it's there are so many ways in which you can distract yourself from being self-conscious, mm-hmm. and which allows a more free flow. But if you haven't developed your skill baseline, then you're going to spend your whole time trying to dodge around the fact that you don't have the uh, technical ability. So being able to do both is a, is a, it's a long apprenticeship. You know, I, I still consider myself on that apprenticeship in, in the same way that, you know, Someone said to me, are you the trickster? No, I'm not the trickster. I'm the trickster's apprentice, um, which I will always be. And so was Picasso. You know, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's the willingness to constantly experiment and learn and turn what you just did upside down and inside out is what um, makes your art uh, fresh and still growing and of interesting as you do it are do you find there are specific devices um that have worked for you over time like you you talk about the golden mean a bit yeah uh, and, and you mentioned da vinci and you mentioned uh i think you mentioned da vinci and given griffin sabine and i'm wondering about those kind of tools and how they play a role I, I i think we all have a very strong and um powerful innate sense of balance and composition which um, you know on the smallest scale um, is recognizable within a shell you find out on the beach and in the largest form is seen in spiral galaxies you know the 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 notion of the the golden mean is not as far as I'm concerned a, a 
something that is geometrically uh, transposed onto the top of our perception, but it is something that is is really born out of that deep instinct within us. I mean, Suzanne pointed out that you don't need to measure to find that spot on the line that is a golden mean. We all have the capacity to simply point to it exactly where it is because it's innately within all of us. And, and, and that's one of the same reasons, I think, why... You know, I, I feel you know, one of the the farces that uh, the art world has got itself into is the suggestion that there are no rights and no wrongs. I mean, in the musical world, there is such a thing as a bum note. You know, it's like yeah. that note missed. <clears throat> um, in the art world, you'll get many people that try and tell you that that doesn't exist. You know, I'm an artist, therefore, if I did it, then it, it's art. You know, from my perspective... There is a bum note in art, and if we if we're not prepared to call it, if we're not prepared to say that is imbalanced, that is wrong, not in terms of you as an individual, but wrong in terms of the greater wrongness of it not feeling right. Um, if, if if we can't have that, then we're we're robbed of the basis of our capacity to be aesthetic human beings. Have you had your own bum notes that you've kind of... Oh, constantly. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the trick is not uh, um, being at a point where you don't make a bum note. The trick Mm -hmm. is being able to recognize when you've made the bum note and what the next step is to correct it. And as the years go by, instead you know, I find that instead of it taking me 10 attempts to keep going back until I get it right, it, you know, hopefully only takes me three or four. Now, the the book, um, The Trickster, um, do you, have you always had an interest or has there been a big interest in the mythological tradition of tricksters? Um <laughs> Yeah, the, the whole the, the whole the universe of archetypes I find mm-hmm. fascinating, and and the, the 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 trickster is is one of those characters that you know right from a I mean I remember being at school and we did Midsummer Night's Dream, and I I just thought you know the only character I really liked in the whole bloody thing was Park. Um, and when I started to find out that you know, tricksters appear in cultures throughout the world. And that the trickster was not there to be a pain in the ass, but to stop us being pig-headed and to guide us towards um, uh, our natural path, our true direction. It's, that's the trickster's job. And, and if, if we are determined to you know, try and wander off, he'll nudge us back on the path, or if we're being stupid, he'll trip us up. Or if we sit down and get lazy, you know, he'll throw a bucket of water over us. It's like that's that's what the trickster does to keep us moving um, towards a greater goal. I think he used a phrase, uh, boots too filled with ego. That I <laughs> yes. yes, thank you, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, now, you, you mentioned the four archetypes. Um, you mentioned the trickster and the warrior, the lover, and the healer. Yeah. Um, 
know, kind of, I guess Griffin Sabine is, is kind of a good exploration of the lover in a way. Um, um y- yes, the lover, lover, an idea. in terms of Griffin and Sabine, it's, it's that, you know, if you, t- you take archetypes as being internalized, um, mm-hmm. and uh, what we're doing here is to try and create our own archetypes in a form that they're most useful to us. I think in Griffin and Sabine, uh, what we have is two internal parts, you know, one old soul, one um, stressed out new world soul, and um, the need for them to find each other so that they'll, they'll balance out, so that they will ha- you know, be able to get a, mar- a marriage of e- equality. In, in Griffin's case, he's you know, in, incredibly tight and anal and anxious, and he desperately needs um, Sabine's uh, looseness and, and freedom and you know, joy of the, you know, the night sky. Um, but also, you know, Sabine has her own needs. You can, you can look at it in terms of the fact that we are, all have that internal struggle to um, try and bring together uh, our two extreme parts, and in, in, in a way, this is you know where our conversation started—the the you know the intuition and the logic, the left brain, the right brain—where mm-hmm. if if we re- either are totally lopsided, well, it doesn't matter which side it is, um, we will always be walking around with a limp. Um, but if we can balance ourselves out and use the uh, uh, appropriate method of perception at any given time in our lives, it you know it gives us for a lot more choice. Um, one of the things I was thinking about with, with your work is um, it's very exploratory in a way of um, getting to know people. Yeah, and and I'm interested as as yourself like observing people. Um, how people interact, how kind of relationships develop. Is that, that something that kind of excites you? I, kind of I've always, yeah, ever since I was a tiny kid, my, my mum used to say, you know, if she, wanted to, if she wanted to know about someone on a first meeting, she'd ask me. Um, <laughs> it, I, I, <laughs> which is kind of creepy. Um, but yeah, I, I've always been fascinated by that whole sort of Sherlock Holmes thing that, you know, yeah, it, it is, it's minor observation. Um, that allows you to understand another person. Is a Malcolm Gladwell talks about um, uh, a technique that most of us use called thin slicing. That when we first meet someone, we actually within the first three seconds have a huge um, impression about them, and mm-hmm. and that that thin slicing is often um, just as effective as the next you know three months worth of knowing. Um, we have we have extraordinary first instincts. Uh, I mean, I, um, there was a guy called Alexander Lowen who said that if you want to understand another person, look at them physically. Look how they how they hold their chin, how they hold their shoulders, what they do with their eyebrows. Now mimic that, and see how you see the world. In other words, if you copy them exactly in their pathology, you will understand how they approach things. And once you understand how they approach things, you'll know how to deal with them. It's kind of an idea on like method acting. Yeah, yeah, it, it is, except it's something that can be done in the click of a finger. Mm-hmm. It's also very handy for poker. 
<laughs> now, uh, with your new book, are you doing any signings anywhere? Um, yeah, I'm doing uh, so because it's only just it's only just released yesterday. Um, I'm, I've got a um, the, the initial signing is uh, and uh, chat um, a conversation interview or whatever it is is going to be at Mumro's um, Books in uh, Victoria. And then afterwards, we'll see. I mean, I, I think, you know, I, I'm not that... I, I went on the road for many, many years, like 15, 16 years, and it was mm-hmm. it was brutal. And so um, I'm not that keen to, you know, hit the road and go to here, there, and everywhere. Um, but that's not to say I'm, you know, if something interesting comes up, I'm, you know, I might not put my little spotted handkerchief over my shoulder and take off. And what night was the event at Monroe? Um, it's a, it's a, we're doing a, um, an onstage interview, talk, uh, chat, uh, signing. Yeah, it's kind of pretty, pretty open. It's going to be on the 5th of February. Oh, okay. Uh, starting at 7.30. Um, but I, I, I know, you know, they do have limited space. So if anyone is really keen to go, which I hope they are, um, they should contact Monroe's in advance. There we go. Uh, thank you, Nick, for taking the time to chat with me today. I really appreciate it. Oh, yeah. It. And, and very interesting questions. Thank you. I, I, I appreciate that. I appreciate your your willingness to uh, go with the flow. All, all the best interviews come that way, and um, all, all, all the uh, lesser ones tend to be prescribed. Suddenly the night has grown colder The God of love Preparing to depart Alexandra hoisted on his shoulder They slip between The sentries of the heart Upheld by the simplicities of pleasure Someone long prepared for this to happen 
drink it in Exquisite music Alexandra laughing Your first commitments Tangible again And you who had The honor of her evening And by that honor Had your own restored Say goodbye to Alexandra leaving Alexandra leaving with her lord Even though she sleeps upon your satin Even though she wakes you with a kiss Not say the moment was imagined. Do not stoop to strategies like this. As someone long prepared for the occasion, in full command. Plan you right. Do not choose a coward's explanation that hides behind the cause and the effect. And you who are bewildered by a meaning whose code was broken. Crucifix uncrossed. Say goodbye to Alexandra leaving. Then say goodbye to Alexandra lost. Say goodbye to Alexandra leaving. Say goodbye.